Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, and we're up to episode 2310. We have listener feedback for October 16th, 2018. It is a Tuesday, and usually this is a Just Jack show. This is the other kind of Just Jack show. It is just me, but I'm doing listener feedback instead of a, a breakout subject. I figured we'd do that because I've got a pretty big backlog from some days we've had to take off recently uh, and make some schedule adjustments and things like that. Being gone uh, this past uh, week, and I guess you'd call it a long weekend, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, uh, I was gone for the Veterans Alcoholic Beverage Competition down in San Antonio as a judge down there, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the event was not as big as I had hoped it would be. It, it really wasn't in his first year, and he had a venue change in there and all. And I, I think that Jason Justice um, uh, is is going to do a really good thing with this thing long term. I think it's going to become a big thing in the world of veterans. I got to tell you, I met some incredible people down there. Um, I may have you guys a new discount vendor for MSB. Uh, in the uh, the fuel making world, the the fuel you accidentally spill in your mouth, uh, Stampede Stills. You can go check those guys out. That's some pretty cool stuff. Uh, they don't make a huge margin on their stuff, so they're kind of trying to figure out what can they do, if anything. But go check their stuff out, man. It's uh, it's 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 beautiful work. It's it's not just the still; it's artwork and some really innovative stuff uh, that they have in their product line as well. So lots of stuff going on. But I figured with uh, with missing some days and all and having a backlog that we would do this. Now, what will the rest of the week's schedule be? Tomorrow will be an interview. i got John Moody coming on. Uh, this is the guy that used to uh, work with the uh, Legal Defense Network for Farmers, and now he's kind of on his own. He's got a new book out. That's going to be cool. Then we got Thursday and Friday, right? And so Thursday and Friday usually is a call show and expert counsel show. We will have a counsel show. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do a call show Thursday or maybe go ahead and, and, and make up the breakout show, because I know for a lot of you guys, that's kind of your favorite show of the week. So that's probably what's going to happen. For feedback today, what are we going to talk about? I got a question on keeping mixed flocks of domestic fowl, chickens, ducks, geese, turkeys all together. Uh, can you do that? The answer is yes, but also, and it depends. So we'll talk about that. Uh, there are now only half as many public companies as there were just a few years ago. Public companies is ones you can buy into. What does that mean? We'll talk about that. And then I have to say it. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren is proof that politics causes brain damage. I'm going to be very short on this segment. It's been on TV a lot. But I want to kind of point out just the absolute stupidity in this whole Native American thing. Um, I got an example from a listener who actually sells product on Amazon where FakeSpot gave him an F. And he should not get an F. So FakeSpot is a service that helps you ferret out uh, phony reviews on Amazon where somebody pays people to do the reviews. Uh, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about how you can still use FakeSpot and you can still mostly trust FakeSpot, but we don't just, just trust FakeSpot. We take a look at the result and then we go do a little bit of investigating on our own. It's really not hard to do. Uh, the FCC says they don't have the authority to do net neutrality, which the FCC already did under Obama but stopped doing under Trump. What the FCC is saying is we never had this authority. I actually put out a video in a show segment uh, where I made that claim myself, that the FCC should have never had the authority. But we're going to talk about this from a different standpoint of balance of power because 20-some state attorney generals are suing the federal government for not enforcing net neutrality 
Uh, it gets gray there. We'll talk about that a little bit of a modern civics lesson, I guess, and separation of powers understanding. Uh, on making the decision to move to another state, I have a specific question, but I'm going to talk a little bit general about it because I think the guy maybe is worrying too much. Maybe he's just trying to talk himself out of it. I'm not sure. Uh, a quote from an article that shows what the left is begging for is what I've been saying for years. The left is begging for fascism. And I don't mean, you know, the supposed Antifa that actually is fascist out in the streets threatening people and stuff like that. I mean, those are symptoms of what they really want. No, I mean that what the left is calling socialism is really fascism, which is national socialism, i.e. the Nazis. Yes, but not just the Nazis, Mussolini, Franklin, Spain, etc. It is textbook fascism. We already have a fascist economy here. I know you don't believe that if you haven't heard me talk about it before. But the left wants it 100%. That's what they're really asking for. And I, I wonder how many of them would be able to explain how it's not that if you they actually were capable of learning what it is. That'd be funny to see. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about that kind of briefly. I don't like to get too deep into the political world, but there's a lot of nonsense going on right now. Of course, I'm in the middle of an ass clown circus. That's my, that's my word for the election. Maybe I'll play the ass clown circus inoculation for you today. Maybe we'll do that at some point. We'll see. Um, but yeah, the left is begging for fascism while screaming that Trump is a Nazi. It's, it's great. It's really great. Uh, a new reason your power could be shut off. Not for a long time, just for a while, and you might have to deal with backup power uh, because of uh, forest fires. Because the fire is burning down the poles? No, because the, the power itself during high winds, the uh, line could come down and start a forest fire, so they just preemptively shut it off during high winds in California. I'll tell you why, for once, I actually agree with something being done in California, uh, as long as it's not overdone, I guess. Uh, question on raising meat ducks. And a guy asking about the vacuum canner, where you take a bunch of jars and stick them in this thing that's basically a pressure cooker and turn on this big, badass vacuum pump that people use to work on things like HVAC systems. And uh, you can can a whole bunch of cans at once, dry can, like pasta, beans, rice, etc., in mason jars. Uh, and are there alternatives to that? Because it's kind of expensive. And I'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we get to your uh, feedback today, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is my, my you, know, you know, one of my favorite sponsors, guys, ButcherBox. And the reason I like them so much is every month a big box of meat shows up at my front gate. And I want to talk to some of you maybe that are a little bit concerned about ordering meat in the mail. Because, well, you know, what if it gets there at noon and you don't get home until 6 o'clock at night? And well, what will happen? Well, as long, I mean, if somebody's going to steal your, your stuff, that, that's something I can't speak to. We see stuff like that happen. Assuming you're not worried about, you know, your box disappearing. Let me tell you that when you get your stuff from Butcher Box, you never have to worry about it being uh, not fresh, really. Um, my box came the day before I was leaving to go down to San Antonio that I just talked about. And so that was a Wednesday, that was Thursday. And, and I was really busy Thursday getting everything ready to get the heck out of here. Not so much the business side, but like the homestead side. We got ducks that were brooding and stuff, and I didn't want to leave Dorothy uh, having to struggle. She had the, she was going to have the, the grandkids on Friday. I wanted to make things as easy for her as possible. So I, I spent all day doing that, and as I was leaving to go get some stuff to, to finish some things up, uh, the UPS dude shows up with the box from Butcher Box, actually a FedEx girl. She hands it to me, and I'm like, I don't want to go in the house, so I throw it in the back of the truck. I want, I go out and I run errands, and it hadn't gotten cold and wet like it is now yet, so the sun's out. 
And the box that's in the truck, with me driving it some, but for, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes at one store in the sun. I get home, I throw the box on the the table in the dining room and think, I'll get to it later. And by the time I had made dinner and all that night, I was like, screw it, it's fine. I know it is. When I opened the box up the next morning to put it in the freezer before I left down the road, all the meat was still frozen solid. They do it right, guys. You don't have to worry. You'll get great meat from ButcherBox. And you can pick it out, and you can change it every month, and you can order extras, and sometimes they get specials. Uh, this time, for instance, I got like three extra pounds of ground meat because it was on sale stupid cheap. This is grass-fed ground beef, and it was less expensive than cheap beef at the store as a special monthly add-on option. So they have great stuff, and if you're an MSB member, you can get free bacon for life with the discount code in the MSB. You can check them out and learn more at ButcherBox.com. In this case... Really make sure it makes sense to go to the Survival Podcast and use the banner because even if you are not an MSB member, you can get a discount at least on your first order. Next up today, let's talk about what to do once you get that meat. You need to cook it, right? And you want to cook it right. So who are you going to turn to? How about Chef Keith Snow? Chef Keith Snow has an amazing blog, amazing seasonings. He has uh, great, great courses that you can take, like Food Storage Feast and the Paleo Beef Course. And you can find all of this stuff at a simple website, harvesteating.com. Check it out today if you haven't before. Chef Keith has been part of this audience for like seven, eight years or something like that. We just had him on the air recently talking about doing food storage with the kind of the paleo primal lifestyle in mind. He did a great job on that show. He's always done a great job for us. So, you know, repay that loyalty. Check out harvesteating.com today. Next up, let's take a look at the day in history. Of course, today is October 16th. And I'm not going to go into one thing. I'm going to just kind of bullet list a bunch of things because a lot of stuff happened on 10-16 in history. Um, back all the way back in 1934, this was the beginning of what was known as the Long March. The Long March was where uh, the Chinese communists were basically surrounded by the Chinese nationalists. And again, this is 1934. This is before World War II. And the Soviets had installed... Mao Zedong, but he was about to be wiped out. So they they broke out and escaped to the north, and the long march was 368 days of walking, covered 6,000 miles. That's nearly twice the distance from New York to San Francisco. It would be like walking from New York to San Francisco, turning around and walking back while people are trying to kill you. So I'm not a fan of Mao Zedong, but I'm impressed with the fact that that was even doable. Uh, on this day also, in 1946, uh, 10 Nazi war criminals that had been found guilty at the Nuremberg Trials were executed. Um, which is interesting to me because it, it marked another death from history. Marie Antoinette, in 1793, lost her head to the guillotine on the same day. But coming forward to 1976, in 1976 on this day, Disco Duck hit the number one spot on the U.S. pop chart, which is absolute conclusive proof to me that everybody in America indeed was high in the 1970s, which explains disco, but certainly is the only way to explain disco duck, complete with duck talk in the song. Uh, in 1973, Henry Kissinger and Lee Duck Thru were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, Kissinger probably being one of the Biggest war criminals in the history of the world, however, in my personal opinion. Um, we also have, in 1854, Lincoln publicly speaks out against slavery uh, and, and during uh, a speech. 
uh, as a congressional hopeful in the state of Illinois, which of course will eventually lead to a President Lincoln and a war between the states. And uh, that's that's about 1854. Uh, Oscar Wilde was born in Dublin, Ireland. He grew up in Ireland and went to England to attend Oxford, where he graduated with honors in 1878. Uh, known for his wit and flamboyant style, so a lot of stuff happened. Uh, in this particular light, uh, 1991, 1991, um, the Luby's Cafeteria shooting. Uh, George Joe Henner drives his truck through the window of Luby's Cafeteria in Killeen, Texas, opens fire on a crowd of 100 people, killing 23 and injuring 20 more, <clears throat> and then shooting himself, of course, leading to uh, Suzanne, I can't think of her last name now, testimony in front of Congress where she famously said, the Second Amendment is about hunting. It's about protecting us from you in reference to the government itself. And in 1958, on this day, Chevy introduced the El Camino, which became one of, after two years and then being re, you know, stopped, and then they brought it back uh, in the 1960s, it became one of the all-time classic muscle cars. And I have to say, unfortunately, that I don't think it makes a very good uh, race car. I really don't. I know two people that I went to high school with, Uh, and muscle cars and souping them up in where I grew up in central Pennsylvania is a big deal, I, I would imagine, even today, but certainly was in the 1980s and 90s. And I know two people, not in one, two people in two separate incidences uh, that did things like, you know, 454 Big Block in an El Camino, and it'll go fast because it's light, uh, and both of them managed to kill themselves. One managed to kill himself and another friend of mine um, racing these cars, you know, not on racetracks, Uh, on highways, um, and uh, so I've always liked the El Camino because uh, I like the look of it, I like the idea of it, I like the thought of it, um, but I always also kind of had a, a, a distaste for it, uh, having known that, that in many instances, not just the two that I know from an obscure county in Pennsylvania, I have to believe there's many instances of people having died in them thinking that they could turn them into supercars. Um, I don't know, maybe with the right equipment, they'd make a, a decent street-level drag racer, Uh, but going around turns at high speed, probably not the right idea. So a lot happened on this day in history, and I thought it'd be an interesting way to do a history segment today. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your feedback for today. Remember, the way you participate in a show like this, email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. Uh, so it'd be like TSPC question for Jack or TSPC idea for Jack, TSPC, Jack, you're a jerk, whatever it is, and uh, send that off to me, and that way it will get screened for the show. I'm not guaranteeing you that it'll be on the show, but I will see it. Again, the email address, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. That's all you got to do to send me an email. I don't have a secret email. I don't have a public ass uh, per personal assistant or something like that. I still do all my own email, even after all these years, and even with the volume that we get in, because it's important to me that I hear from you guys and know what you're really thinking and do my best To, uh, to help you guys out. So anyway, our first question today comes from Sean, and Sean says, can you keep domestic fowl together? Details, I currently have three ducks. Next year, I want to look into getting other domestic fowl. I've been looking at chickens, guinea fowl, and geese. The birds will be free-range during the day, but penned up at night to prevent predation. Thanks for everything. Congrats on 10 years of TSP. Well, Sean, the answer, and I did answer this kind of abbreviated for Sean, as I said in an email to you, was yes, you can, but there are some considerations. Let's talk about them. Um, geese. So geese and ducks will generally get along splendidly with each other. 
Um, especially if they come up together as babies, but in general, you won't have a problem introducing geese to your duck flock, especially if you introduce, introduce geese to your duck flock when they're big enough to go out on their own and be with the ducks, uh, but not bigger than a duck shit. That's kind of my entry point that I'd bring them into. So they kind of bond with that as part of their flock. They will always kind of congress together a little bit more uh, than they will with the ducks, but they'll get along. If you have the opportunity To brood some ducks with geese, if you want to expand your duck flock a little bit, you'll find that by the time they're half grown, the geese will be a lot bigger than the little ducks, and the little ducks will sit on the back of the geese like they do a mother duck. It's kind of cute, and it creates even more of a bond, but generally not a problem. Chickens and ducks, not a problem, except if you're going to be, you say, penning them up at night, chickens like to be in a coop. They really need a coop. They have no ability at all to evade predators once they go to sleep. They just kind of go in that chicken coma. Like if you need to if you need to process chickens, the easy thing to do, like you're going to cull, just wait till about, you know, a, a couple hours after dark and go out in your coop and you can just pick them up off the roost, whichever ones are going. You can take your time, you don't have to chase them and uh, pen them up for the next day. So since that's the case, they really need to be closed in, not just maybe in a place with uh, with a hot wire around it and, and, and an open thing, because if anything gets to them, they can be gotten. So if you're going to be putting your ducks in a coop, and it, well, it's just a few ducks, it probably isn't a big problem. You could probably do that. I prefer kind of a holding area for ducks and a coop for chickens, but they can all go in the coop. The problem with that is, is your chickens are going to poop on your ducks. Um, you need to kind of set things up so that it's not really a comfortable place, let's say, on the floor underneath the, the chicken roost, wherever you give them a place to roost on, because any birds that sit under there are going to be subject to chicken poop. Um, so that's kind of a consideration there. Guinea fowl, I've heard guineas are mean with other birds, but I've seen them kept with other birds, but I have no guinea fowl experience. My concern for people is when you step into the world of turkeys. Turkeys, especially toms, as they get bigger, can be very destructive animals to others. Now, I'm not saying it can't be done. I know people that do it. Uh, but I had a rogue gobbler last year. I lost four turkey hens that were the same size as the gobbler uh, that I was growing out, all of them for meat. And I thought some kind of predator was doing it. And we eventually found out we had a rogue gobbler. And he was, I mean, These birds get big. This bird was over 50 pounds. He was tearing the other birds to shreds. I have had turkeys kill ducks. My personal opinion with turkeys would be it would be probably best not to keep turkeys with your other fowl, though, again, people have done it. And I think it would be less of a concern if you're keeping heirloom turkeys that kind of top out in the 20-pound range rather than broad-breasted bronze, which is what I grow for meat. Now, you're talking, again, you're talking about a 50- to 60-pound bird on the hoof by the time it's time for it to graduate. Uh, so, And I have I found them to be pretty damn brutal, so I would kind of watch that. And then the last caveat. Geese are big birds, and geese can be mean, as you know. There's a comic going around somewhere, and it's Satan talking to God. He's like, come on, let me create just one thing. And God's like, fine, go ahead. And Satan's like, jackpot. And the next thing is a goose, right? So they're not that bad. They're really not. But they can be pretty aggressive. When you have a problem is in, um, in a brooding season. When those females decide to go broody and they lay a nest and they start laying eggs, the girls and the ganders both will defend that spot. This isn't really a big problem. 
what you really need to do, though, then, is have a way to separate your geese from the rest of your birds during laying season. They don't need a lot. They just need some kind of a place. What I did, I got some hay bales, and I kind of laid them in a U-shape, and I put a couple across the top, and I made like a, a goose, a, a, a wonderful goose place for gooses to lay eggs. And uh, I kept the geese in a separate area than the ducks during that brooding season. And I still had a duck get the hell beat out of it because it managed to, to you know, they find their way to places. And uh, they went in the goose hole, and the geese was a go the goose was a goose hole, and beat the goose out of them. I'm just saying, right? So it is important that we, you at least accept the fact that you might have to separate them during brooding season and have a plan to do that. Otherwise, they tend to live together just fine. Ducks and chickens live together as though there's like like they don't really pay a lot of attention to each other, but they kind of just I don't care, whatever, do whatever you want. Uh, You don't really care about each other. I have seen drakes, though, drake ducks, try to breed female chickens. It's funny. It doesn't really work. Nothing really bad happens, but just know that it, 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 it can be a thing. I've had roosters with ducks. I've never had a rooster get mean with ducks. I suppose it could happen. It's something to watch out for and take a look at and make sure you're not having problems. But you can go ahead and do it. Uh, I do it. I plan on doing it again. Uh, once these little ducks are big enough to come out of the duck tractor, Uh, they will go over to the old duck holding area we've always used, and the three little chickens are going to come out of the aviary and stop eating my quail's eggs and uh, be a duck and chicken flock. So anyway, just a side note here. The, uh, the ducks are currently on the porch. Yeah, and the reason on the porch, it sucks. Um, it's, gonna, it's rained like every day for the past three days here, and it's rained like day off and then like three more before that. We have basically minor flooding. I hate to call it flooding because of what some people are going through right now with the storm, the hurricane and all, because um, it's nothing like that. But it's pretty much there's a couple inches of water on my entire property. There's almost nowhere where if you if you were out, um, you know, you, you, if you weren't wearing shoes, your feet wouldn't be soaking wet. And the problem with that is the little ducks that have no feathers yet, they can't just sit in water. If they were a month older, they could be patrolling the whole place right now and set free and they would be they would have fun. Because they can go get dry places when they want to. Uh, they can't be in a duck tractor like that. So they're on the porch. And basically I push it to one side and hose off the patio. And the next day I push it back to there and hose off the other side. And they're going to be like that for a week. Uh, we're supposed to get five more inches of rain between now and, and, and Saturday. Uh, so it's going to be flooded for a while. And it's like 40 degrees out. So they'll die. So just on a note with your, with your birds, when you're thinking about things um, like... Uh, brooding birds and all at time of year have secondary, you know, backup plans and things like that because you don't, you know, you kind of never know when you're going to have one of those situations where um, you're going to have to make some kind of adjustment. So just like think about that. Uh, Matthew sent me an email from thehustle.co. And the upshot of this email, and you can read the article if you want to, I have a link in the show notes, but only half as many companies today exist as public companies as they did 20 years ago. So the, the issue here is, like a lot of new companies especially, have no intention of doing an initial public offering, and as companies get bought out, merged, etc., you kind of have a dwindling of the companies that you can actually buy stock in. Um, where did everyone go? The first reason companies choose not to IPO is simple. It's not cheap. IPOs cost about $4.2 million in fees, 
plus 5% of fundraising proceeds. And then a recurring cost of about $1.5 million in annual fees after that. Um, I was friends with a gentleman, he's now passed away, that uh, established a company that I did a lot of work with uh, in a contract relationship uh, called Cognigen Networks. And Cognigen sold long distance and cell phones and all kinds of stuff like that back when selling it on the Internet was really a decent way to make money. And it was the, the height of all the technology booms in the 90s. And uh, Kevin was con convinced by others that it would be a good thing to take the company public. And that decision to take the company public is directly responsible for it eventually failing. Because the the company was never really big enough to go public. It was never traded on like the Dow or whatever. It was traded on the OTC big board, uh, the over-the-counter uh, stocks. And that burden, which was not a million and a half back then, it was about a million dollars a year back then, was enough to, to really tip the balance out of the company's favor. It was unable. And it's not like you can just turn it off. You can't just change your mind. And uh, without that decision, that company would have survived a lot longer, and the people that were working with it would have done a lot better. So there is a reason not to do this. When you want to take a company public, you're talking about really, really big companies, and that's kind of what's left. Uh, they're, they're now, you know, the companies that are left are, are, have more total value than the companies we had 20 years ago. So there's half as many companies, but their total value is about the same as the total public companies 20 years ago. So they've gotten twice as big, even though there's half as many. And, um, the, you know, the concern that, you know, you and I won't have anything invested, I think is, is not really founded. You can invest in, in all sorts of things, not just companies, by the way. Uh, and I'm not even talking about getting alternative in the way we've talked about, like how you look at your home as an investment or how you look at tools and investment or food or improvements to your property. I'm talking about just straight up investing. There is, you know, there's an exchange traded fund for nearly every commodity on the planet. So there, there's plenty of options for investing. But what Matt said is, do you think maybe Wall Street might be working toward making itself obsolete? In other words, do we, do we need a stock exchange uh, if there's not going to be that many companies to buy? Um, I think that the, 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 the concept there, the, the trading platforms, etc., stay valid even if there were no companies to buy because of commodity trading alone. It's a huge part of what, what goes on there. But that doesn't, so what I'm saying is, I don't think because of this that Wall Street's in danger of becoming obsolete. I think eventually with blockchain, Wall Street may become obsolete. That we may get to a point where, you know, you, right now you can trade cryptocurrency with these, these platforms that people just basically spin up. Uh, we may get to a point where people can trade everything and anything on blockchain with no middleman. Uh, this is why the banks hate Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, etc., and all derivatives thereof. It's not just that it's a, 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 a form of private currency. It's the entire concept itself. The entire point isn't so that you can buy a Lamborghini. It's, that's not what big, it's not like Satoshi when he was coding Bitcoin said, I'm going to do is I'm going to do this thing. And the people that are smart and buy into it can buy Lamborghinis. No, the concept was let's take banks and, and, and financiers and everybody else and let's just Move them out of the way. Let's let co commerce be between solely the people doing commerce. And whether that be so that you can buy a gun or whether that be so that you can buy web hosting or whether that be so you can buy a house, it shouldn't really matter. Or whether that be so you can fractionally purchase part of a company. 
And this is when the FTC cracking down on the IP, I, ICOs, your initial coin offerings and all. I think we're going to eventually get to a point where, though, a company will be able to create a, a token that represents it like a stock, and people will trade it, and you can pass any law you want, and nobody's going to care. There's not going to be really anything you can do about it. It's going to be done in such a way that, like, you don't get to touch it. You don't get to decide. And, and think about what it would mean for companies that wanted to participate in this world. So you want to now make your company available to investors. You want people to be able to invest as little as a couple thousand bucks. You want them to be able to trade your stock. You want to pay a dividend to them. You don't want to do all this bullshit. Well, you can put $4.2 million back in your pocket and spend nothing to do it. I know mean, you can't really do that now. And yes, they will come put you in prison if you try to do it now. What I'm telling you is I think we're going to move to a place where you will be able to do it. They won't be able to put you in jail. And it'll start out with non-domestic entities. Companies that do not exist in the United States, the United States has no jurisdiction over. But eventually, the market's going to market. And if that becomes a way to reliably finance company operations to provide reliable returns to shareholders, right, uh, stakeholders, call them whatever you want to, then eventually, by not participating, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. And no matter what governments do, markets just never seem to go away. So again, I have this article linked in the show notes for you. Next up, I want to talk really briefly about Elizabeth Warren. If you haven't paid attention, good. You're probably better off for it. But I, I want to kind of talk to you about what what has happened, what she said, and proof that I, I what I'm saying is that I think that... In general, politics makes people stupid. Uh, it certainly makes people stupid from a standpoint of when you just look at people arguing about it. You can see how, how it dumbs people down. And it makes people defend things that are indefensible because, well, new tribalism, and it's my party, and it's not Trump, so that has to be good. It is Trump. It has to be bad, things like that. So anyway, here's what happened. Many, many years ago, long before Donald Trump ever really seriously considered politics, this, this chick, Elizabeth Warren, who is a senator somewhere in New England, I don't know if it's Massachusetts or what, I don't care, because it's not me, so I don't, not my circus, not my monkeys, but she's one of the lead champions for democratic socialism. People love her. She's in the Bernie Sanders realm. She might actually be to the left of Bernie Sanders. And uh, so she's been a champion of the, the insane left for a long time. Well, you know, when you're a leftist, you take part, and they have been doing this for a long time. It's ramped up lately, but for, for 50 years, the left has been part of what I call the Oppression Olympics. The Oppression Olympics is a race to the bottom. Because the less of a, of a white male you are, the more oppressed you are, and therefore the more valuable you are for diversity and such, and you're so trampled, so you're great. Okay? That's the Oppression Olympics. And that's, if you think about it, it's a great way to describe what's been going on with the left. Well, the Oppression Olympics are older than we realize. So long ago, Elizabeth Warren made a claim um, when she went to college and when she taught at college that she was a, a part partially Native American, and specifically Cherokee. And she was even listed by Harvard University as a person of color, a professor who was a woman of color. Right? She's not white. She's a Cherokee Indian teaching at their school. So... There's been some debate about whether or not this actually benefited her directly, but it was presented in a way for diversity's sake, etc. So people long ago said this woman is not Native American, not just Donald Trump. Like people, are, this is an old thing. Well, 
you know, when Trump talks, the left goes nuts and the left attacks him. So in the past, he's been attacked by Elizabeth Warren because that gets her name out there. That, that's why if you're a Democrat right now, you, you attack Trump no matter what you think about what he said because you get on TV. So he started calling her Pocahontas and making fun of her and said she's not Native American and he, he bet a million dollars she wasn't Native American if she'd take a, a DNA test. So Liz, being the freaking genius that she is, decides I am going to take my DNA test. Right in the middle of the midterm election cycle. you got to believe everybody that's on the Democrat side that actually is, if they're doing any thinking activity at all, is thinking why, 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 why now? Why didn't you just shut up and wait for this to be over? She's trying to set herself up for a presidential run. So she does a 23 and me or whatever, and it comes out in the Boston Herald or some shit like that, that she is 164th Cherokee, no, 164th Native American. They don't really know if she's Cherokee because you can't really figure that out um, with DNA. We don't even have enough Native American DNA to even be sure that that really is 164th, right? And the paper actually even says that, like, one, as much as 164th and as low as, like, 1-124th or something like that was the initial report. She says, I'm vindicated. Now, look, I think you're kind of silly if you're going to say 164th makes you Native American. That's That, to me, it's like 1-point-something percent. I think it's bullshit. I think many of us are 1% a lot of things, and we would not, especially when you're on the left and you talk about cultural appropriation all the time. So understand, kind of part of where I'm coming from in this is the hypocrisy on this side of things. And, in, for instance, about a year ago in Oregon, there was a, a couple, a white couple. They, I bet they were more than 164th something non-white. Um, but they opened up a burrito uh, restaurant. And the leftist mind-numbingly stupid morons in uh, Oregon, Portland, went nuts protesting them for cultural appropriation. You have no right to make burritos, you're not a Mexican, that type of thing. They ended up shutting their doors. So this is the party of, you know, we attack people for cultural appropriation. You can't, your kid should not wear this, this uh, costume of a black character because that's taking away their culture. That's not what it is, but that's what they say it is, so that's where they are. What Warren is doing here is actually what I would call sort of cultural appropriation, which I have no problem with. We appropriate cultures. That's what we do. I, I like Taiwanese food, for instance. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm stealing from the Taiwanese by eating it or by cooking it. Or even if I was a, a chef opening a restaurant selling Thai food. That's not, that's not bad. It is cultural appropriation. I'm taking something that is not of my culture, and I am appropriating it for my own use because I, I value it. Now, what we have here is cultural misappropriation or misrepresentation. I want to be known as this Native American when I know damn well I'm not. And I would think 164th would have been a failure. It would have been a failure, and yet she's dumb enough to come out with it. Problem is, apparently, Elizabeth Warren and her handlers and the people at this newspaper all learned Common Core math, even though they all should be too old for having done so, and they messed it up. Just a little bit. Um, the DNA that may be, not guaranteed, but may be Native American DNA would be 1 1,024th. 1 1,024th or 0 0.09 and some change percent. That would be 9,000ths of a percent. 
Ivory soap is less pure than Elizabeth Warren is white European. Okay? Ivory soap's like 99.4, and Elizabeth Warren is 99.97. Okay? Uh, it's, 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 it's 99.91. Okay? It's ridiculous. She's, she's, like, she's as white as you can be. I don't have a problem with that in of itself, other than all this I'm a Native American bullshit. What I really cannot believe is that even once they fix the math, she's like, I'm vindicated. I'm vindicated. It's, there's nothing to talk about now. I was right. I am Native. Come on. Not in the way that you claimed at all. And Trump had said he'd, he'd, he'd bet a million bucks. She's not. And there's people who think he should give her the million dollars now. This is this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Now, continuing to fight about it is also ridiculous. But what I find to prove that people have lost their mind with partisanship, there are people who understand everything I just said. They actually agree, not with my opinion, but with the facts. They don't deny the facts at all. They accept the fact that she's most likely probably maybe one one thousand and twenty-fourth, which is ridiculous. Nobody even writes a fraction that way. It doesn't even make sense. Um, maybe Native American. Because there's other genetic markers, and you don't even know, is that Northern Native, or is it like South American Native? Like, There's no real way to even be sure. Again, Native Americans have been pretty close to the vest with not like supplying DNA to, to, to science. They don't really want to do that. I understand why. Don't have a problem with that either. But people know, know the math now, and still say, she kept Trump's ass. She's, she's vindicated. She's, just, she's as much a Native American as anybody else. What? And this is what I'm saying. Politics, I think, damages brain cells of politicians, but equally it damages the brain cells of anybody that's partisan. I cannot see a place where anybody would make that case for someone unless they were on their quote-unquote team. I cannot see that if, let's say, Lindsey Graham had said he was Native American, and it, he said, yeah, I am. I'm part, I have a grandmother that was part Cherokee, right? Same thing Liz said. And eventually he says, okay, enough of this shit. You don't believe me? I'm going to go to 23 and me and take a test. And he then he came back and said, see? I am one one thousand twenty. The left would just rip him to shreds, and this is my thing. They should. They should if he's out making a deal out of. It. Remember, this is all because of Trump. No, this is because she made the claim. You go out, start making claims, and you want recognition for something. There's not a problem in my world when somebody calls you on your bullshit, and when you come back and you're one one thousandth, I'll leave the 24 off, one one thousandth of something, see now, doesn't it start to like sink in how small a little tiny piece that is? One one thousandth. One one thousandth. Yeah. That's what we're talking here, and I, I'm sorry, I don't buy it, I'm not even sure that's valid. But to, to hold it up as an example of victory just shows that politics damages brain cells. And this is why you should stay out of, what does it call, folks? The Ass Clown Circus. Let me play you. Here's, here is the election night music for you so that you can, you can be inoculated from all of this shit. Here you go.
But seriously, these people ain't nothing but a bunch of absolute 100% total ass clowns. So this next one I think is really useful. Uh, it comes from Charles, and Charles uh, sells comfrey on on uh, Amazon. And uh, he sells comfrey salve uh, or comfrey cuttings, and he has two different listings. And one of his listings, when he checked himself at Fake Spot, got an F. And another one of his listings, for basically the same thing but a different listing, got a B. And he has some theories that I won't get into because it gets kind of backdoor politics as to why that might be the case with somebody being kind of negative. But that surely should not actually affect uh, FakeSpot reviews. So what is FakeSpot if you're new to this? Uh, FakeSpot is a website that you can go to, fakespot.com. And if you see an item on Amazon, it's got like five-star reviews and a bunch of them. And you're not sure, you can take the, the URL and drop it in there, and it will tell you its opinion. And that's what we need to understand. It's an opinion based on a, an algorithm as to whether the reviews are genuine or not. You know, And if they are, then it would give it an A. And then if well, they weren't, it would be an F and shades of gray in between. Well, I have recommended products on there that get low grades on fake spot because I've tried the product and it works, and I don't really care if they game the system, or because I don't really think the game the system. I think that the, the algorithm can be wrong. We've all searched for things on Google and found things that didn't really make sense. That's an example of a failed algorithm and I'm pretty sure Google's a bit better with their algorithms than FakeSpot is. FakeSpot's just not a big company. Really, it's innovative and cool and it does generally work fairly well. This is what I say if you're going to use FakeSpot. You drop the thing in the FakeSpot and if it gives it a bad grade, go read the reviews and then go check and see if those people are reviewing all the same products. So when I've found people actually gaming the system, uh, one is the Bluetooth speaker that I recommend, the iChocolate Mini. I still think it's a great speaker. They are big cheaters, but they did it because it works. Um, but when you look up, you find like 10 people that reviewed it, and those 10 people reviewed like 20 items, and all of them reviewed the same thing, and they all give them five stars, and they're all kind of Chinglish language style reviews. So if you actually read the reviews, when you get a concerning mark from FakeSpot as part of your research into products, you'll be able to do a lot better kind of ferreting out whether that, that rating is true or not true uh, and whether or not it should influence your decision. And I'll just say with the fact that I recommend a lot of products on Amazon, um, some stuff is stuff that like I recommend it on Amazon. I bought it 10 years ago at a store. And so I know the product, so I just recommend it. Some of it's stuff I bought on Amazon when I needed something. I didn't take a, a million years to, to examine it because I needed it. And it seemed like it would work, and I bought it. It works, so I'm like, okay, it works. I know it. I don't care what the reviews say. But a lot of times when I'm buying something that I've never bought before, I do read Amazon reviews. I go read third-party reviews. I do a lot of research into the products that I recommend for you guys. Then I buy them. Then I use them. Then I recommend them. And when I see concerns coming from FakeSpot, the first thing I do is I start to read the four-star reviews. And when the four-star reviews, and so a lot of times they're verified purchases, they'll, as payment, they'll give them one to get them to do the review. But you can tell right away the way some of these things are written. And once you, once you find one that you're suspect to, you can click the reviewer's name and see all of their reviews. And when all of the reviews are glowing and all of them are kind of written the same way and all of them are from two or three, you know, it's 50 reviews, but they're from two or three companies, well, you know, they're gaming the system. They're big, big cheaters. And I do that when I recommend products to you guys, and I just thought maybe you'd like to know and you'd like that little tip as well. So thanks for sending it in. Next up, 
So next up, coming from John and Moore Park, who sends me a lot of cool stuff. Um, a bunch of states are suing the federal government, which generally I'm kind of excited when that happens. I, usually that means the federal government is doing something or making the states do something that they don't want to do. And in response, states get together and sue the federal government and said, To hither thou shalt come and no further. Ninth Amendment, Tenth Amendment, you have gone too far. You can't make us do this. Go sought off. And so I usually like that. And anything that pushes back on federal power, I like. In this instance, the states are crying and wanting the federal government to do something versus preventing them from doing something. They want the, they want the federal government to regulate the Internet through something called net neutrality. Net neutrality is nonsense. It is not necessary. The Internet was just fine without it for the majority of the time there has been an Internet. Uh, net neutrality rules were in place, and I, I, I adhere to this as unconstitutionally, and I said so long ago. I'll put out a, a couple videos that I did on this subject in the past so you can see if you want to get more information on my opinion on net neutrality. But basically, whether you think it's a good idea or not, the executive branch of our government does not have the authority to regulate the Internet. They do not. It is not a telecommunication service. It is a data service. It is not voice. It is data. Okay? And the federal government has no business telling the Internet people how to run the Internet. That When Obama's administration did it, it should never have been done, and it was unconstitutional. A court did rule that it was constitutional when that was challenged. That doesn't mean it's constitutional. Every time a case goes to the Supreme Court and gets ultimately changed, that means that other courts along the way said something was okay when it eventually was found to not be, or it wasn't okay when it was eventually found to be. Okay? So... And I'm, that doesn't even mean the Supreme Court got it right. All I'm saying is just when a court rules, that alone does not mean that it got it right. However, when, it, when the Supreme Court rules, then it's a done deal. It takes a lot to ever take it back there again. Okay, It's considered settled law to a degree, anyway. Well, so the court that did this was not the Supreme Court of the United States. It is not settled law. And Trump basically gave a directive to the FCC to look at this and determine whether or not they should even be doing it. The FCC decided, no, we should not be doing this. We're going to not do this thing. We're going to not tell care. We're not going to tell. We're not going to tell providers how they should deliver service to their customers. It's between them and their customers. What a novel concept! Well, a lot of these states want net neutrality. And what net neutrality says is that I must treat your traffic the same as anybody else's traffic, which largely is what's done anyway. But there are some things that are done to deal with limitations, which are becoming largely irrelevant anyway due to technological advances. We're moving to a world where they're going to be able to move so much data so fast it doesn't matter anyway. But, of course, the hysteria, and since Trump touched it, now the left really went nuts. Well, they can't do anything because the FCC said we're not doing it. The states got together and said, you have to do this. Well, we're not going to do it. So they sued them in a court of law to make them do it. And what the, what the defense is, we should have never done it in the first place. We don't have the authority. Now, here's the thing. Even if the judge rules you do have the authority, how can it make them do it? There's no law that requires this. It's a rule, not a law. It's a rule, not a law. There has never been success in passing a net neutrality law in Congress. 
It's never been done. It's not a law. It's a rule. Executives set rules within their authority. The authority is granted through the passage of laws. See how simple our government really is? So if the FCC is to have the authority to enforce net neutrality, Congress must give it the authority because right now it doesn't have it. Now, Congress could give it the authority and then it could choose to use it or not to use it. If Congress passes a law mandating net neutrality and assigns enforcement thereof to the FCC, then the FCC could be required to do it. But there is no law. So even if this judge says, well, yeah, you do have the authority to do it, well, we're not going to do it. That's our executive decision not to do this. You can compel the executive branch to enforce a law. You cannot compel them to enforce a rule that you also compel them to write. It doesn't work that way. And, of course, the only reason the left is really all over this issue the way they are is because Trump's opposed to it. I mean, I'm telling you that right now there are people out there that if Donald Trump said, I am pro-oxygen, beautiful, beautiful oxygen, in protest they would wrap plastic bags around their face. They really would. That's how much they have of tarred which is Trump Anger Resistance Disorder. And I think that TARD long ago, it went through, you know, like flu has mutations and it gets worse or whatever. So I think TARD mutated long ago and it went from TARD to retard. So it's recurrent extreme Trump Anger Resistance Disorder that these people have at this point. And, and, and that's the, but, but it is an old fight, to be fair. Um, this, this, I wrote on this as a blogger in 2006. That's how old this fight is. And somehow, the internet as you know it, from the time you used to get on your computer and click a thing, and it went, and it rang like a telephone, and then it went, you've got mail. Since then, all the way up until late 2014, there were no net neutrality rules, and your internet worked just fine, and it got better every year. Then from that point up until 2016, 20, actually, really, they just stopped, even though they, they rescinded the, the rule, they just stopped enforcing it a few months ago. Um, that, little, that little piece of the Internet had net neutrality. And now it's completely gone, even though these, these states are begging the Fed. This is ironic to the extreme. The, the states begging the federal government to enforce a regulation that the federal government says they don't have with the power the federal government says it doesn't have. Okay? Um, <laughs> it's, uh, wow. Our, our founders, like, I just think we should dig all our founders up and wrap them in copper and put a coil around them and, and then just, like, kind of, like, transmit what's going on to them. And I think we have free energy. They'll spin in their graves so rapidly they'll produce all the electricity we'll, we'll ever need. I, I, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. But the point was the internet worked just fine. And now that neutrality is gone, all this hysteria about they're going to lock down websites and make you pay by the second to use the internet or whatever nonsense they came up with next. Do you know what the evil bastards at Spectrum, uh, Spectrum Internet did to me? They sent me a letter. Those bastards, they sent me a letter. Do you know what that letter said? Dear customer, 
in an effort to improve your Internet experience, we are increasing your bandwidth from 100 to 200 megabits. Um, it, it won't cost you. You don't have to pay for it. Your bill stays the same. But you will need a new modem. And so you can either come by one of the offices and pick up your modem, or you can go online and fill out this form, and we'll mail your modem to you for free. So they gave me a new upgraded modem. I can keep the old one. They don't want it back. It's outdated. It's, you know, it's five years old. Uh, so they gave me a brand-new modem, told me to throw the old modem away, and I have double the speed. That's what net neutrality brought, the horrors of net neutrality. This is, this is nonsensical on its face. This is the bigger thing, though, and what people don't understand. If this actually got decided that the federal government must enforce this rule, the balance of power is destroyed in this country in a way that I, I don't think even most people are realizing when they look at this. What it would say is the states, by use of the courts, can compel the federal government to write a law at the executive level and use executive assets to enforce it. I mean, you, the, that would, again, I'm, I'm Thomas Jefferson, like 10,000 RPMs or something. You're circumventing Congress. The House and the Senate get no say on this. There is no law this is based on. This was a rule, like somebody thought it was a good idea. They knew they needed a law for it. They tried to get a law passed for over a decade. Couldn't get it done because there really isn't the support for it you've been told. It's all astroturfed. And when people really look at it, without the, the stupidity, they go, that's just dumb. We don't need that. Any logical look, you're like, oh, we don't need that. So there is no law. The executive branch exceeded authority, in my opinion, in the first place, made a rule they didn't have the authority to make. The next executive, see this is when an executive does something under executive power, that by its very nature means the next executive can undo it. That's how that, if you have the power to do it, then the next executive has the power to undo it. Uh, you didn't like it? You should have done it through Congress if you really wanted it to last. So they say, no, we're not going to do that. That's not a rule we want. And the states come and say, you must make this rule again, and you must enforce it. And then if you get the courts to say that has to happen, hoof, hoof. So then what the states could do is anything they wanted the federal government to do, make them do it. That's not how this, this, this is not how this republic is supposed to work. Think about the last Tuesday, the show we did on how close this was to an anarchy. The states are supposed to have a lot of power in restricting what the federal government does. But almost none in what it, they compel the federal government to do. The entire constitution of this country was written from a standpoint of the restriction of government. The states have tons of power within their borders, but they have an ultimate check, a consequence within a republic. If they do enough stupid shit, you'll leave. You have a limited federal government, a strong state government, and then competition among the states. So when one state does shitty things, people can go to another state. And if you think about it, It's a big part of how slavery was fought until the court screwed that up. It's almost like the court's been screwing shit up for a long time. You didn't want to be a slave? You went into a northern state where they didn't have slavery. Done! Of course, again, the Supreme Court screwed that up and said it was okay for somebody to go get you and drag you back. And even that it was okay to go get somebody that was never a slave and claim they were and drag them back. 
It's the courts have screwed things up forever because the court is supposed to be a referee, not a player. And the, 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 the states that are involved in this lawsuit, instead of saying, you have no authority to do this to us, federal government, are saying, we, we, are, we want you to not only enforce this in our states, but in the other states. The referee is being asked to make the players play the game the way half of the people want it played at the expense of the other half. This is a way bigger thing. That, you're not hearing about this in the news. You're certainly not. And if you do, it will either be as a victory or defeat for Trump's administration. That's how you'll hear it reported. You will never hear the analysis of this that's necessary to understand the threat it is to our way of life. What do you say? Well, Jack, what do you care? You're an anarchist. I am a pragmatic anarchist, my friends. I am an anarchist because morality, because principle over preference, because I think hurting people and taking their stuff is wrong. I'm a pragmatist because there's a lot of people that disagree with me, and they have guns and tasers and dogs that will bite me and ways to take my money away from me and put me in a cage. So I work within the groundwork and the framework of the republic with the ideology of an anarchist. Just like for some of you that are Christians. You think life should be a certain way, but you don't get to impose that will on others. And some of the things you think should be aren't. And you can live personally the way that you feel that you should, but you also accept the fact that the world is apart from you and you have to comply with certain things and you have to let other people do certain things even if you choose not to do them. And you might say to me, does that make anarchy a religion? I would tell you no, but it does make it an ideology, which also conservatism and liberalism and communism, and so, they're all ideologies. But a religion, <laughs> you know, a religion has a hallmark of some level of authority. Anarchy is an anti-religion because it denies the authority of any and all and the total freedom of the individual. And that does not mean freedom from consequences. That just means freedom from being owned or controlled by others and a belief that you have a right to the things you have rightfully acquired. Right. So no, I don't think anarchy is a religion. I don't know how I ended up there from there, but... Uh, I, I, I do think that what you are seeing here would be the thing that a lot of government types would call it anarchy because it, it's chaos. It's completely chaos. See, the, the, the thing that does make a state work and work better than any other state when it comes to our country is reasonably fair rules, even if, there, even if there's some unfairness. But, you know, basically you do the things you're supposed to do and then you're pretty much left alone. If there is a way to take stuff, it's a, it's, it's, it's apportionate. It's all done the same. I'm treated the same as you, and you're treated the same as me, and we all know what the rules are. And the rules are written down, and we can bet that they will be followed. And they'll be followed that way, and even if we don't like them, we know what they are, so we can adapt to them. The courts compelling an executive to write a law and call it a rule and enforce it on the other states that don't want it, that is when, when people talk about anarchy being chaos, that's exactly what they're talking about. It's the wrong word. It's the wrong word. It's an abuse of power. It's an abuse of authority. And it is chaos. And chaos is what destroys a country.
And the reason chaos like I'm talking about can destroy a nation is because one of the things that keeps nations working, including nations that we don't agree with, and we, we, and we, we often say they don't work. They do. They just don't work the way we want them to. Let's say Scandinavian socialism. It works. Uh, Franco's uh, Spain was a fascist economy. Uh, 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 it was almost in some ways a fascist theological hybrid because the Catholic Church was kind of a state religion within Franco's Spain. It's not a good place to be, but it worked. And the reason any government tends to work is consistency. You know what you're going to get. Everybody knows the rules. Everybody plays by those rules, even if we don't agree with them. And in our system of government, there's a very clear way that we change a rule. So we change a rule from a standpoint of what government can and cannot do through an amendment to the Constitution. There's a lot of laws that can be passed. There's a lot of rules that can be set. But when it comes to this This thing only works this way. The only way that gets changed is by the Constitution. And a law gets passed by Congress, not by a court. If you set a precedent that, like, what, 25 states can get together and sue the federal government and say, thou shall have this rule and thou shall enforce this rule, you, you've completely gone nutso on the Constitution. Even if the even if the branch of the executive branch has the authority to do it, but it's choosing not to in, abs, in, in absentia of the law. In other words, if, if, the, if the law reads such as the 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 executive branch may do these things, or they may not do these things. This is, this is the power they have at their discretion. And then you can get a group of states together and mandate enforcement of a rule that they don't even want to have. Well, you don't need 25 states to do that. It's not like the court's going to say, well, it's 25 states, so it's almost a majority. If there's 26, I mean, that's not how courts work. The court's going to issue an opinion that then becomes a ruling, okay, based on what it thinks, based on a judge's decision. And if that just gets it wrong, you can effectively have what would amount to an amendment to the Constitution and the enforcement of a rule or a law upon states that are directly opposed to that change that could be the majority. They could be the significant, it could be like one state. What if one state filed some sort of a lawsuit that said the federal government will enforce banning a certain class of firearms and convince the court that it should be? Well, that'll never happen. I don't know. It's not actually a lot different than this. Does the federal government already have an organization that sets rules and mandates for what is and is not a legal firearm in the United States? Do they? I think it's called the ATF, right? Because we, when somebody comes out with a new product and we're not sure, like a bump stock, who decides? Well, is this an automatic weapon or is this a semi-auto weapon? And a, you know, is this thing a rifle? Is it a handgun? Is it? Does it fall under NFA? They decide. So what you would be setting here is a precedent. The group of states can sue and force any entity within the executive branch to create a rule within its perceived authority and make them enforce it. You hear all the time, it's a constitutional crisis over some stupid shit of a disagreement between the president and the, the, a senator or some stupid shit. It's not a constitutional This, This, if allowed to be, is actually a constitutional crisis. That's why you'll not hear about it on the TV set. So I, at this point, if you don't understand how big a problem this is and how wrong this is, uh, me talking about it any further won't help you today. Uh, do some research because this is 
just not acceptable. Anyway, moving on then to something totally different. Tom says to me, I'd like some feedback and insight. He's thinking about moving to southeastern Florida from the New York area. Uh, given the restriction of southern Florida, does this make me more or less free? Does it give my daughter a better start or a worse start? Details, I have an 11-year-old daughter, daughter from a previous marriage. My ex wants to move, but uh, be within 34 minutes of Miramar, Florida. So we are looking at uh, Dakey, Davey, Florida. My daughter wants to move. My current wife wants to move. My boss moved to Fort Lauderdale and wants me to join him. I get to keep my New York job and salary. My ex has gotten permission to work her New York job from home in Florida. They're all looking to me to make a final decision. Uh, I'm going to shortcut my answer. Go! Yes! Yes, move from New York to Florida. No, you're not less free in Florida. I don't care what part of Florida you're in. Florida is a much freer state in every way you can think of than New York. Concerns. My biggest concern is schooling. We all have to work currently to live, so homeschooling is currently off the table. Schools in southeastern Florida are no more liberal than schools anywhere in New York State. Okay? What type of man will my daughter meet? You don't know and you don't get to decide. He, to be fair, he said, I suppose this point is moot because it will largely depend on what I have modeled, but I also suppose I'm thinking about availability. Uh, thought I could say this, though, thought I could say the same for here. Um, yeah, it, you don't worry about who your daughter's going to meet. You, you raise your daughter to be a good young woman and you let her go out and find. There's good people all over the place. There's good people in the worst places. And good people attract other good people. It is moot. I'm glad you see it for yourself. Uh, three, the political climate in South Florida. I tell myself I could be further north, like an unincorporated Point St. Lucie or New Simona Beach. It would be an easier choice. Uh, those liberal counters, counties scare me. Um, your biggest restrictions in Florida are going to be of the HOA kind and the environmental kind, and they're, they're not really going to change that much based on where you live. Uh, the environmental ones that come from governmental, there's a lot of environmental protections in Florida. There should be actually more. Uh, we are destroying marine life at an unbelievable level with red tides right now due to idiocy of sugarcane farming and uh, due to what they do with the Corps of Engineers in Lake Okeechobee dumping gazillions of gallons of water into two rivers that are not supposed to have any water from Lake Okeechobee going into them. Um, so those environmental restrictions, it's probably not that big a deal, especially if you're buying a house that's already built. Um, now, the HOA-type stuff, which could either be true HOA or like a township thing, that's, you know, you can move here to Texas, where I live, and you could be where I am right now, and you have literally no interference whatsoever, and you can go one mile down the street from me, and it's HOA hell. And one mile the other way, it's there ain't even anything approaching an HOA. And one mile south, you're back in HOA hell. And one mile north, there's nothing there. And two miles north, you're back in HOA hell. That's that's an individual decision. On the ma You have to look at the macro and then find the micro within the macro that works for you. Um, in general, Floridians are pretty solid people. Um, I love Florida. I prefer southwest Florida to southeast Florida. But that's not about politics. If anything, I would say on some level, Southwest Florida has more of kind of a liberal influence in some components and in some ways. In general, it's America. You're going to get about 50-50 mostly wherever you go. The reason you think that it's different than that is you tend to see what you want to see or you tend to notice what you don't want to see. It's up to you how you view things. 
Um, I, I don't know. Dude, I spent a lot of time in Florida. I had very few political conversations when I was there. Um, liberal schools, again, New York, Florida, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, if, if everything else works, go. Um, now, if you're looking for a reason not to go, then be honest about what the real reason is and talk to your family about it. Because I almost feel like you, you got something you're not telling me here. Because this doesn't make, this doesn't make logical sense. I, there's no world in which New York versus Florida, you're worried about too many liberals. It, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. I, it, liberal schools, it doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm not seeing something. I don't know. But in the end, where you live determines what school your kids go to. Government school sucks anyway. I'm more concerned with making sure I model, like you said, behavior for my children and my grandchildren well, and that I provide them adjunctive education to insulate them from the bullshit they're going to learn in any school, including right here in Dallas, the Fort Worth area. I, I, I don't trust my grandson is in school right now. I don't trust his school to educate him independently of me. Now, they'll educate him how to read and write and do math in a stupid way, and I'll teach him how to do math the right way, and he'll learn both ways so he can get through it. But as he gets older and he starts studying history and stuff, and as he gets older and can understand, when he tells me what he's learning, I'll tell him what's really going on. I'm not worried about it. The truth in the end. See, the more you educate someone, the more they know of the truth. And as far as you know, approving of the man or woman that your child will end up with, let that go. This is my litmus test for you know, my daughter-in-law with my son. Is my son happy? Yes, done. But what about... Don't. Nope. My son, my job was to raise him so that he could go off and have his own life. And... He's almost 30 years old. So we're way past the point where I should be done with my job. The only thing I want for my son is for him to be happy. That's all. How he creates that happiness for himself is not my effing business. And if I could teach the American young parents to have you know, kids that are 10, 11, 12, you know, you're 10 years away from kind of being in this world of having a young adult that is your child, right? That would be it. That once that kid has their head on their shoulders right and they're able to pay their own bills and they walk out door, what you want for them is for them to be happy. That's it. But I would prefer that they marry a conservative. Nope. That they're happy. You don't get to dictate their life. And uh, so I, I, I appreciate, Tom, that you're, you know, you're concerned enough to think that way. But at the end, you got to do the hard thing that all parents have to do if you're doing the job right. Work yourself out of a job. Be comfortable with it. Next one, Dubbin, uh, Dubin. Dub, uh, if I got your name wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, but Dubbin is what it looks like his name is. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on the M977 for homestead equipment? Uh, I have actually been meaning to ask for a few weeks, but I heard you mention it in episode 2306, so I figured I, would, I should get in on it. <clears throat> My wife... And I have a five, six, five to six year plan to find and move to a location in Idaho or Montana, currently in Washington. We like remote areas and don't mind having to really plan out uh, a shopping trip. Depending on geography of the land <coughs> we may eventually acquire, it may be difficult to materials and equipment from the street to the site. 
Uh, would also be fun to have a huge truck. I know resources could be used elsewhere if the land is mild enough for just a 4x4 truck and trailer. <clears throat> I have a Class A CDL with nearly every endorsement, and I've had to tow most of the vehicles I've owned home long before they were functional. Besides use and impracticality, I'm interested in your Army mechanic's thoughts on the M977. Uh, so a lot of times I feel like People, I have to learn to, in 10 years to read through things. Please give me permission and say things that make it feasible for me to do something I know is not really smart. And you're not really going to get that from me. If you want one, you're a big boy and you can have it, right? If you didn't tell me you had a CDL, I would tell you not even to worry about it. Not just because of the class of vehicle, because you just probably shouldn't be driving an M977. This is a, <clears throat> the Hammett, guys. For those of you that aren't familiar Familiar with it? If you just type M977 into Google, you can get a look at this thing. You'd be like, oh, that thing. These things have like a manual crane, like a cherry picker for pulling an engine on the back of them. And some of it is for cargo purposes and all, but really it's because, well, that's the only way you can get the spare tire down and lift the spare tire up and get it on the vehicle. Uh, because the tires on these things are about four and a half foot tall from the ground. Uh, there's eight tires, and it is an eight-by-eight vehicle. It can run eight-wheel drive. <clears throat> and because of that, people think, well, it can go anywhere. Well, it can go anywhere it can fit. Um, I've seen them stuck in plain old sand before, by the way. Okay, uh, I've seen them go down roads where um, they kind of get into a position where they kind of wedge themselves. So it's like It's not like you can't get it stuck. Uh, I've seen them try to navigate turns where they couldn't get around. Now, again, you have a CDL. You kind of know what you're dealing with. You've driven big trucks before. This is a really big truck. And it's, you know, it's not like driving, you know, a, 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 tr a tractor trailer bobtail with a trailer on it where you have that flex in the middle. This is more like a big ass bus. Um, I think the weight, the weight of a uh, Wrecker Hemet, if I remember right, with all the tools and stuff on it, so the one that tows other vehicles, 109,000 pounds. I once drove a Wrecker Hammett towing a cargo Hammett across the Bridge of Americas in Panama. Uh, I did not really enjoy it. Looking back, it's kind of cool that I can say I did that. Uh, I was pretty much white-knuckled the whole time. It was terrifying. I didn't want to kill somebody. I mean, it's just, it's, they're an immense vehicle. Uh, they have a white diesel is the motor in them that's up behind the cab. It's huge. It's it's turbocharged and intercooled. There's a lot of stuff that can break. They're actually pretty reliable. They don't break a lot. At least they didn't back when I worked on them when they were relatively new. Um, but everything's expensive and hard to get. I looked at, you know, like, well, what does one of these things sell for? And some of them are, like, pretty much like the, the cargo habits that are stripped off, so they're like a flatbed kind of thing on the back, like thirty to $40,000. Um, they are not practical for the average homesteader because the dadgone cargo space, If you now, I would assume you'd be getting a cargo helmet. Uh, just getting stuff up and into them is ridiculous. They're a military vehicle for military use. You know, It's something that's either crew-loaded or it's loaded with, again, cranes and things like that. Um, they were, they're very good for what they're designed to do. Move really big shit in, 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 you know, the field. That's what they're for. Um, I don't, no, I, I would not recommend it. When I first read it, I kind of, like, a lot of times with my, my mails when I get them, 
they come in and I like flip them into different folders. And this one I like, yeah, I'll flip that into the follow-up folder. Maybe I'll answer that next week. And I just saw M9 and Homestead Equipment, and I didn't see the 7.7, and I thought you were asking about a 900 Series 5-ton. And I was even going to say that may not be practical, the 6x6 5-ton truck. Um, because, again, just the, the height of the cargo for a lot of things that you'd be moving. But, yeah, I was going to come up with some reasons. Like, like, like well, this is how you could justify it. I, I No, I, I just don't recommend it. And, and I worked on them for, for a number of years. And I'm going to tell you that everything is hard. Everything is hard. Taking a lug nut off is hard. Everything is just, it's just brutal work. Uh, no, don't do it. That's all I could say. Uh, if you still want to do it, you're a big boy. Do what you want. You, you would never convince me. You, I'll tell you what. I'll put it to you this way. If somebody said, Jack, I'll give it to you. I would say I'll take it under one condition, and that is I'm allowed to sell it. Now, I'm going to be honest. I probably would drive it through town once or twice, you know, for, for, for shits and giggles and for nostalgia. You know, hey, listen, let's listen to that, that freaking Randy airship. Yeah, let's, let's listen to that turbo kit. Yeah, okay, I get it. You know, there is some fun in it, uh, but I wouldn't want it. I just wouldn't. <laughs> Let's take another one. So the show didn't get too long today. I'm going to kind of move through this one fast. Um, the article is in Fox News, and it's, as socialism sees resurgence, here's are its pros and cons. Um, and you can read the article in full if you want to. But it was a quote that John from Moore Park pulled out of it that I wanted to read to you because it is, It's something like even the people at Fox News probably just wrote it and never even thought about it. It's just what it is. It's a quote from an economist. And it, it should send a chill right up your back. Because it is the actual type of socialism that the left, i.e. Warren and Sanders and Clinton, want. They don't want what you would think of as full socialism in the form of communism. Which is awful. Okay, I'm not saying either one. I'm not even saying either one of these is better than the other. But but here's what here it is. This is the quote. It says socialism comes in two flavors. Said economist Douglas Holtz Eakin, uh, president of America Action Forum and former head of the Congressional Budget Office. One flavor is when all the means of production, all the companies, the factories, the hospitals, are actually owned by the government and run by the government. And the second flavor. They may be owned by private individuals, but they are heavily regulated and essentially managed by the government, i.e., you can own your company. You can even start a company. If you tell us what industry you're going to be built in, okay, you're going to be in this industry, you're going to do this this way. This is how much you're going to charge. This is how much you're going to make. No, you can't sell for less than that. He's not just making you sell for, for, for more, pricing yourself. They'll actually restrict how much you can sell it for. Both up and down. There's people calling this with, for this with Amazon right now. They cut their prices low, and it's hurting other people. They should have to sell their product for more. It's exactly what the left is asking for. This is what the left has been asking for for a long time. This is what the left is talking about when they say Nordic socialism. And I know some of you are going to say that the Nordic countries are not socialists, and some of them are more market economies. Some of them are like this, but you know they're in the neighborhood of like 50 to 52, 55% of their economy is this way. These people in our country wanted 100% this way. 
And what they don't tell you about these Nordic countries is here's how Nordic countries pay for their socialism. They have incredibly low, yes, I said low, corporate income taxes. Because what is the solution of the idiots on the left here? Oh, the rich will pay for it. That's not how it works. The, the, the high taxes in those Nordic countries are on every single individual. Well, the poor, you get an equalized economy. Everybody gets a job that pays at least X. They have a high minimum wage. There is no poor in the way that you mean it. Okay? But you are probably there already and you think you're poor. All right? And, and then they tax the hell out of the consumer. They tax the, the, they tax the individual income at an insanely high rate in the neighborhood of 40 to 60 percent. Then they put a VAT tax on everything in the economy. So the manufacturer makes it and sends it to the distributor and it's taxed. It's not like sales tax where it's only taxed at the point of sale at the end here in America. So in America, what happens, let's say, let's say we're, we're building a widget and I have a two-tier distribution model. Manufacturer sells to distributor, distributor sells to retailer, retailer sells to customer. In America, when I sell the, as the manufacturer, I sell to my distributor. <clears throat> my distributor does not pay sales tax. Okay? And when my distributor sells to the retailer, the retailer does not pay sales tax. Only the end customer pays the sales tax. In these Nordic countries, most of them have value-added taxes on most things. So when I sell to my distributor, the item is taxed. When the distributor sells to the retailer, the item is taxed again. And then when the retailer sells to the customer, it's taxed again. Now, don't think that's not all priced in, so the customer really pays all of that tax. And this is how these Nordic countries work. And this is what they're asking for. But they're asking for it not at like 51%. They want the government to run everything. Now, what do we call this? What do we call it when, on the second flavor, as this guy calls it, the, the, the companies may be owned by private individuals, but they're heavily regulated, and essentially they are managed by government. The first kind we think of of communism, that's what you would call international socialism. Government owns and controls everything, so everybody's absolutely equal. The second kind, which is considered the better version of socialism, The government just manages the companies, but they're privately owned. Hmm. I'm reading you the textbook explanation on fascist economics right now, verbatim. Fascists oppose both international socialism and free market capitalism, arguing that their views represented a third position. They claim to provide a realistic economic alternative that was neither laissez-faire capitalism nor communism. They favored corporatism and class collaboration, believing that the existence of inequality and social hierarchy was beneficial, contrary to the views of the socialists, while also arguing the state had a role in mediating relations between the classes, contrary to the views of the liberal capitalists. Huh. Hmm. They don't like international socialism. Government controls and owns everything. Hmm. And what do, I know you're going to tell me there's some of these people, that's what they want. You're right. There are some that are flat out communists. Because they don't know what communism is. But actually, the, the, the somewhat reasonable people on the left, they're not arguing for international socialism. And they are arguing directly against free market capitalism. 
The only thing left is what? National socialism. Fascism. They're begging for fascism. See, the part of this is the American school system has so lied people into delusions. Because what do they do when they show you the political spectrum? Communists go on the far left and fascists go on the far right. Fascists are socialists. National socialists. It's right in the name. The, the, the Nazis should be over with the socialists and the communists. But they hate each other. Remember we talked a little bit about kind of religion earlier? They hate each other like religion. Like There was a big battle at one time, right, between the Protestants and the Catholics. People killed each other over it. They were both Christians. If you had made a, a religious spectrum, they'd be at the same place on the spectrum. They just have different ideas about how to get it done. The fascists belong somewhere between a socialist and a communist. I'll even say maybe a little bit left of the social what we think of as typical socialism. A little bit toward the right, but they're still way to the left of center. The socialists. And this is what they're this is what the people that are screaming Trump is a Nazi and he's Hitler, he's literally Hitler. They're begging for fascism, and they don't even know it. Don't think like, well, yeah, they know what they're doing. No, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. These are the same people walking around wearing Che Guevara t-shirts that are concerned about the rights and freedoms of the LGBTQ, whatever, how many letters they can put on in our community. This is an inconsistency. You can't do that if you have any knowledge of what you're talking about. There's a guy that would have shot you for being gay. You think he's cool because he's against the capitalists. But you're mad because somebody hurt some gay guy's feeling because he didn't bake him a cake. Trust me, if you had a guy like Che Guevara running the country, getting a cake baked would be the least of your concerns if you were a gay person. This is the dumbing down of America. This is the dumbing down of multiple generations of Americans. And this is why we talked a little bit about you know, the Constitution earlier. And all. What has saved this country? Because this is not the first time this has happened. What has saved this country time and time again of young generations coming in and thinking that all of these things are new ideas instead of old, proven, failing ones is because of the consistency in our form of government. That once they got to a point where they actually worked for a living, they actually were vested in things, they actually began to reap the rewards of their hard work, they realized, hey, this is how it works they move back to the center and over to the right. They do so under the guise of partisanship with GOP and, 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 and the Democratic uh, Party, but they largely move toward more economically conservative ideals, and that is what's held this country steady. And we're at a point now where, you know, it's it's been like you, you, you move to the left and then you inch back to the right. And you move to the left and you inch back to the right. But it's incrementally over 120 years since the dawning of the progressive era that we've continued to move ever so slowly to the left. And there's a point at which the right looks like the old left. And that's kind of where we're at now. And it's, it, it's, it's a dangerous thing going forward. It, it's something I would be lying if I said I wasn't concerned about. Next up, JR sent me a link, and I've got a link to it in the show notes. You can, read again, read the article if you want to, but um, uh, I'm just going to give you the synopsis. While the rest of the country is literally inundated with rain, and we have flooding all over the country, not just where the hurricanes were, California, especially parts of it, are largely still in drought. 
very dry, very windy. And it takes one little, one little spark to ignite one little flame, and next thing you have these massive wildfires like we had earlier in the year. Well, with these huge amounts of wind coming through, this article that JR sent me from App News um, says that utility companies have been shutting down power to tens of thousands of people at a time and killing not the power really just to the house, but the whole line. Just shut it down. Shut it down. Wait. And when the winds stop, <clears throat> they turn the power back on. So it's, it's like rolling blackouts, except they're long duration, and it's not to conserve power. It's so that like we don't have a, a, a high-tension power line blown down in this heavy wind because then you're going to get a lot of sparks and a big fire. And there's some people really upset about it, but you know this is, to me, it's this intelligent decision. You dealing without power for a couple of days sucks. You having your house burned down and, and t thousands of other people having homes burned down, that sucks a lot worse. So what this really is is another example of being prepared to deal without, without power. There's a, a million reasons. Okay, it's an ex exaggeration. There are dozens of reasons that your power could go off. But it's the commonality of disaster. It doesn't matter why it matters that. So I, I just thought that one was worth bringing to your attention. Again, you can read the actual article if you want to in the show notes today. Uh, next up, Eric from Michigan says, Have you ever considered doing a run of meat ducks such as Peckins? I tracked her 12 chickens this year, moved them daily, and it worked well. I love duck meat in restaurants, and I think the meat is better than chicken or turkey. I've read that Peckin ducks can be raised to 11 pounds in seven weeks. Have you ever considered running ducks? Uh, for me, do you have any thoughts on how to tractor them? I assume they need a kiddie pool like you used. You know what? They really wouldn't need a kiddie pool, but they probably would appreciate it once they got big enough to have it. Um, take all your illusions, though, Eric, of running pecking ducks in seven weeks to meet slaughtering size and just throw them away. Um, I guess if you brooded them for seven weeks and looked at 14-ish weeks, you'd be close. Uh, you're going to look at between 11... <clears throat> 11 and 16 weeks of age for a pecking duck to reach slaughter size. If I was going to do this, I would not consider doing it with anything other than jumbo peckins. I would do the jumbo peckins. You might as well get the bigger carcass size. Um, all they really need is a way to get their head wet, um, you know, as far as to take, take care of their health. Uh, needs for that one. So something they can dump their head into. Uh, if you tractored them, though, I mean... It would make a lot of sense to do something like use um, eight-foot um, panels, hog panels, as uh, your your tractor, and just wire that together. And yeah, you can give them some kind of a pan or something they can get into. And then I, you know, I've done this before with lots of birds. And instead of having a closed-up tractor, you have an open top. As long as predators are not a concern, that'll work. You just kind of grab one corner and drag it. Grab the other corner and drag it, and you just kind of repeat that back and forth until you've moved it to a new footprint. As long as it'll fit in between the areas you're going to move it, it's it's pretty easy. Um, so yeah, you can do it, but it's not seven weeks. It's not seven weeks. It's not seven weeks. I don't I don't know where that number came from, and all I can think is that it comes from somebody that's brooding for five to six weeks, and they're talking about how long they're on pasture. Because at seven weeks, they're just really. I, I would say you've wasted the opportunity at seven weeks. They're going to get significantly bigger in the next seven. Uh, a jumbo pecking, you know, you can end up with a carcass weight in the six to seven pound range, um, which is <clears throat> is not as big as it sounds. Ducks have fairly large bone structure, and they're they're shaped differently than chickens. Uh, and a duck that size, you'll find there's a lot less breast meat than you would expect. 
A lot of times you get that little piece of breast that you get at a restaurant that you were talking about. You're so fond of. You're like, man, I wish I could give me a bigger piece. It's probably the whole half of breast. The duck's keels are kind of flat compared to a chicken, and that 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 breast cutlet is, you know, it's more like a heirloom chicken uh, size than a you know a, a a Cornish cross. Even the bigger ducks. The exception to that would be Muscovy's. A Muscovy Drake breast cutlet is if if you have sides and stuff like a half cutlet can probably be split between two people. It's it doesn't taste like a normal duck though. It tastes like beef. Best beef you ever ate. Beef. Uh, so you know, go ahead and give it a shot if you want to. Um, your big thing is going to be uh, processing is a little more difficult. You need your scalding temperatures to be a bit hotter. They are more difficult to pluck. Um, if I do a meat duck run, the only reason I would be doing it is because I have a processor that will process ducks for me. If I had to do it myself, I probably wouldn't. We did it in West Virginia. It, it did work. It was not easy, and we even had like you know a, a mechanical plucker and all. Uh, I kind of feel the same way about keys. But you're looking at again 11 to 14 weeks. Uh, in your planning to actually get there. And I would go, like I said, go ahead and do the jumbo peckins. And you can get them from Metzer Farms. So uh, it's a good place. Uh, the other thing about jumbo peckins, this is one of the things that would be attractive with ducks, is they reproduce true to type. They don't brood, uh, they don't brood well, but they reproduce true to type. It would be very possible to have a small flock of jumbo pecan ducks, say two drakes and six hens, And you're gonna get a, you're not gonna get a kind of egg production. You gotta have like khaki camels and stuff like that. All right. I mean, you're gonna get, you know, 120 to 140 eggs a year per duck. And you're gonna go a pretty long period where you don't get hardly any at all. There's a pretty big drought in there where they shut down on you. Uh, but during the time you're getting your production, if you hatch them yourself or you have like, uh, broody chickens that can hatch and take care of your baby ducks, you could, you could run a meat run of ducks every year and do almost no work. <clears throat> If you can do the free range type of thing, a rotational grazing thing, just make sure like once those little ducks hatch, if, you, if they're going to get pretty big before you, because now you don't have to worry about harvesting them exactly at this particular time. You know, make sure you band them or something so you can tell which who's who and you know who you're calling out and what have you. And you could you could do them really easy. That that would be the thing. Unlike chickens, where to get those really good meat chickens, you have to have all this crazy crossbreeding. You can do it yourself with jumbo packets. Uh, next question comes from Greg in uh, North Carolina. Uh, do you still recommend a vacuum canner for dry canning? And do you know of any alternative that is uh, that may be more reasonably priced? I've checked out the past review uh, that you did of the vacuum canner and checked out their website. The whole deal is a bit out of my price range right now. Is there an alternative to it and how hard it is to convert a pressure canner into a dry canner if you buy the parts at Lowe's or Home Depot? Thanks for your help, Greg. Uh, Greg, you know, people have to make money. And that can be an opportunity for you to save money. And what I mean by that is the cost of making your own vacuum canner is significantly less than the cost of buying one. Because for them to take the time to make it, they have to make it worth their while. It really is built just off of an inexpensive pressure cooker. You, I mean, you can, it's about how big a one do you want? It does not need to be high quality because you're not going to pressurize it. You're going to You're going to vacuum inside it. It's not going to collapse. Anything that would be safe to pressure cook in is safe to create a vacuum in. You just create a vacuum in a jar, right? Because that's what you're doing when you do vacuum sealing a jar. So if you actually just look at the review and you look at the product, you can figure out how to make one. 
It's some valves and some quick con- quick disconnects and some hoses and stuff like that. And you could probably shave close to a hundred bucks off the cost, even if you buy everything new. If you go out to like flea markets and all and find an old pressure cooker, uh, maybe do a little salvaging and scavenging for some of the parts, you could probably even save a little bit more money. The hard part is the vacuum pump is the expense, and they're about ninety to a hundred dollars for the pump that they use. Uh, to make this big giant thing into a, 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 a all-in-one uh, vacuum sealer for jars, and the way it works, you put all your jars in your pressure canner, which which is now a vacuum sealer, and you close it up like you were going to pressure can. Of course, you're using dry goods. We're talking about macaroni. We're talking about maybe nuts. Uh, you know, anything that's not a risk for botulism. Anything with moisture in it, bad juju. Even if normally shelf stable, no oxygen, moisture, botulism. Die. So we don't want to do that. Uh, again, macaroni, rice, stuff like that is stuff. Crackers, another thing uh, that we, we've done. And you put all the jars in there, and you take the ring, you put the, the canning lid on it, and you take the ring and you turn it to just barely tight, and then back it off a hair. You put the lid on, you attach your vacuum pump, you turn it on, brrr, it sucks all the air out of the chamber, so of course all the air out of the jars as well. And then you turn the pump off, and there's a valve. And you just open the valve real fast, and the vacuum sucks air back in. It goes, well, those lids on that can, they lock in. And you can pick them up by the the lid with the ring off now, and they won't come loose. And when you open it, if you watch my review, I'll put a link in the show notes. You pull on it, it works really, really good. And the beauty is you can throw a dozen jars in there and do them all at once. And that's really the reason to spend the money or the time and resources to make one. You're going to do a lot, and you're going to do it somewhat frequently. If you're not going to do it frequently, you're only going to do you know a dozen today and two tomorrow and maybe next month a couple, uh, then a Food Saver vacuum sealer, there's an attachment you can buy for it. You put it on the jar, you put this little tube in, you push it, it goes, and it works, and it's done. Okay? So... A vacuum sealer that has the ability to seal jars may be a better option for you because even if you invest in a good quality vacuum sealer, it does more things. It doesn't just do jars. It does regular vacuum sealing. If you already have a vacuum sealer, you might only need an attachment for it. Yeah, it takes about a minute a jar. But if you're going to do 10 jars, it's 10 minutes. It's really not that big a deal unless you're doing a high volume. Um, now I got another way. You want to do it dirt cheap? All right. What you do then is you get the adapter for the food saver. You, it comes in a package of two. You get the small mouth and the big mouth for the jars. And the way it works with your, your food saver or any other vacuum sealer that does this is you put that on the jar with the ring off. So just the top lids on, you put that cap on it. There's a tube that runs from there to the vacuum sealer. You run your vacuum sealer, it kind of works in miniature like the big thing I just described, pulls all the air out of the jar, and when you turn it off, it releases the vacuum on the, on the adapter, but your little, uh, your ball jar lid is now air locked down. Right? You can buy those adapters and not have a food saver or other vacuum sealer. And then you can get something called a brake bleeder. And this, what this is for is bleeding out brake lines, and it's basically a little vacuum pump. And you can hook that up to the adapter for the food saver and put that on a jar. And with your hand, 
manually pump a vacuum. And there's even a little vacuum gauge on the brake bleeder. And you generally want to pump up to, and the guy, I'm going to show you a video to see how to do this. He says 20 pounds. If you really want to, go ahead. If you pump a 15-pound or even a 12-pound vacuum on one of those jars, it's, it's that gun vacuum sealed. As much as you need to worry about for the type of goods we're talking about. So you pump it up, you let the pressure off, pull the top off, you're done. It takes about it's about the same amount of time to do one jar as it takes to do it with a food saver, about a minute. The difference is it's a minute of like you know those old hand exercisers, pump, pump, because it's you don't like it's not like a bicycle pump, right? It's 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 the opposite of that. It's like a, like a hand squeeze. It's one thing you squeeze with your hands because it's 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 meant for bleeding bleeding brake lines. It's what it actually is made to do. So it's not something you're doing a hundred times a day generally. But why would you go this route? Well, because you can get a brake bleeder on Amazon. I have a link to it for you today for twenty bucks, and you can get the adapters for the food saver with the little hose that comes with them and all for twenty five bucks. So for 45 bucks, you can vacuum seal all the cans you want. You're just going to take about a minute apiece. You probably want to rest in between every few to give your hands a break. Um, again, I think you're kind of better off with a vacuum sealer. Now, people have asked me a bunch, why don't you have a vacuum sealer at tspaz.com? That's my, you know, my Amazon uh, review site. Because Amazon does not have the vacuum sealer I recommend listed. I recommend a vacuum sealer from Cabela's. It's their commercial-grade 15-inch vacuum sealer. It's expensive. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes today so you can find it, but that's the vacuum sealer I recommend. I have thrown two food savers away, and the second one I took to the rifle range, I was so frustrated with it, I blew holes in it with, with a 375 H&H Magnum. And I felt better after I did that. Okay, It was kind of like a version of the printer scene from Office Space. That's how angry I was at this thing. Some people love them, though. And if you do, that's great. You can get one. I recommend the Cabela's one. The Cabela's one comes with a little tube thing. And you can plug it in there, but it's designed to work with these these canisters that Cabela's also sells that's more for doing marinating or if you can do dry goods stores, but you have to buy this proprietary little canister. And the way it works is you run it until the, 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 the sealer knows it's done, and then there's a valve on the canister itself. You turn that valve, and then you disconnect it, and that's how it works. So I don't know that it would work or not work with food saver ones because of how it shuts itself off or whatever. So I'm not sure. If it, and I might buy them. You know, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Unless I hear from somebody who says, no, don't do it. I tried it and it didn't work. But if it did work for you and you do use the Cabela's one and you've used the food saver adapters, let me know. I'm going to order a set of the food saver adapters and I'll try it with my Cabela's one. And if it works, I'll keep them because I'll have another way to do it. Especially when Because a lot of times I only need to do like two jars. And that's when I think it's stupid to have to go get the big vacuum canner out. Um, but I'll try it and if it works, I'll let you guys know. Um, I have some concerns about the way the Cabela's thing works with its proprietor. But in the end, it's still just pulling a vacuum, so it should still work. Anyway, uh, that kind of wraps things up today. I do not have an item of the day for you at tspaz.com today, but I do have, uh, from today's work anyway, uh, the brake bleeder and the food saver canner accessories in today's show notes, which is for episode 2310. Uh, if you want a good laugh, get on by episode 2310. I've been, I've been up in the game a little bit with the, uh, the images that go with some of these shows. Uh, if you like 80s sitcoms, I've been doing a lot with that. I did a Star Wars one last week or two. Um, but we're playing with 80s sitcoms today, and we're going back to Night Court. Remember Night Court? I'm not going to tell you what the image is, but if you, uh, you come by episode 2310, I think it'll give you at least a chuckle. 
Uh, also, of course, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to buy anything online, as long as you start there, you help support us. And you can always support the show by becoming an MSB member. That's the Member Support Brigade. I'll just say today you can go by the Survival Podcast, podcast and click on Members. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today as we uh, finish up Chris Ledoux week uh, with a broken week. Today I have a song that, uh, unless you're a fan of Chris Ledoux, you've probably never heard. It's called The Ride. And it's a story of him and his little brother. And I think it's some uh, some literary license here. I'm not sure this is actually biographical, but... It's about a, a little fair carnival coming to town and him and his brother running down there with all their money in a mason jar and it, uh, going on a pony ride and how that pony ride made him feel like a man uh, and how this guy that kind of stunk that put him up on the, on the horse told him a few kind words and he said, sit tall in the saddle and hold your head up high. Keep your eyes fixed where the trail meets the sky and live like you ain't afraid to die and don't be scared. Just enjoy your ride. And, of course, that song is really about how you live life. And this is kind of where Chris will do some of his music. Uh, it, 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 it combines the best of nostalgia and Americana with an overall message. There's some great stuff out there I've never played. Maybe uh, I'll, I'll have a, a Chris Ledoux Week 2.0. I'll send John some recommendations. But won't be a song called The Last Drive-In and about that being the last drive in, in, their, in their town being torn down and what that was like. and uh, Really great imagery. But, I mean, it, it's hard to argue with the advice when it comes to riding a horse or just living life. Sit tall in the saddle, hold your head up high, keep your eyes fixed where the trail meets the sky, and live like you ain't afraid to die. And don't be scared, just enjoy your ride. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I was six years old, my brother was ten. When July day came running in, seen a Ferris wheel at the edge of town. So, of course, we headed on down. Well, it took us an hour to walk that far. Carrying our fortune in a mason jar It was all pretty sad at Cheap County Fair With a few old rides, but there was ponies there Well, the ponies stunk and the air was still In that dusty circle behind the Ferris wheel This old guy smelling a smoking rum Swung me up and set me down on one Well, I'd never rode a horse, but I'd seen it done Cowboy movies made it look like fun This old man whispered a few soft words It was the best advice I ever heard Sit tall in the saddle, hold your head up high Keep your eyes fixed where the trail meets the sky And live like you ain't afraid to die And don't be scared Just enjoy your ride I went up a kid with shaking hands But I came down a full-grown man It's like he cast some voodoo spell Things were different for me now, I could tell Cause whenever troubles came wandering in His rhyme would pop in my head again 
Somehow I rode through the needles and nails Brambles and thorns that life entails And said tall in the saddle Hold your head up high Keep your eyes fixed Where the trail meets the sky And live like you ain't afraid to die And don't be scared Just enjoy your ride Well, I know someday farther down the road I'll come to the edge of the great unknown To stand a black horse riderless And I'll wonder if I'm ready for this Well, I'll saddle him up and he'll switch his tail And I'll tip my hat and bid farewell And lift my song into the air That I learned at that dusty fair Sit tall in the saddle Hold your head up high Keep your eyes fixed Where the trail meets the sky And live like you ain't afraid to die And don't be scared Just enjoy your ride Now don't be scared Just enjoy your ride